and not doing the translation work that's really easy. The machine did that for me, but I'm dedicating some of that time I've saved towards the research element and I'm improving it. And then I'm very happy to send that off to a client because it's the machine's opinion and my opinion together. Today, we're here with Sarah Hopkinson, a Brit living in Nice, France. So finally, I have someone in the same time zone as me. <laughs> Makes a difference, right? <laughs> yeah, no crazy hours. But Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this is going to be a really interesting one because you grew up as a clever hybrid with French and English. So let's jump in right there. Why did you decide to take it a step further? Some people, they've they go somewhere on holiday or on vacation. They're like, yeah, I can speak this language, but it's just a visiting thing. Why did you decide to move there? I started studying French in high school. So I started when I was about 11. But before that, I knew a little bit from traveling to France and from speaking a bit of French with some of my family. My granddad was very passionate about languages in general and French in particular. And I decided that I was going to carry on and study French at university for my bachelor's degree, partly because I thought it would be useful and partly because I thought I've put a lot of effort into this and I think I'm quite good at it. So I studied French also at university. And actually my first year was a bit of a shock. I realized I wasn't as good as I thought I was, but that motivated me to carry on going. As part of my degree, I was a language assistant teaching English in a French high school and I had such a great time there and I thought I really want to be able to use my language skills and to live in this country that I feel this affinity for. So I decided to settle in France and just see how it would go from there. Okay, that sounds like a, a very long-term goal. I know I had that same experience where I, I grew up speaking Spanish but then studied at the, the high school level and you're like, I don't know the difference between those two tenses. Yes. I have the accent, but I don't know. I don't understand this grammar stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it turns out that grammatical rules actually do matter. You, you can't just breeze through them and think, oh, I'll come back to that later. Yeah, it's just the, the timing is the important part. But let's take a step back with your degree here. Of course, you studied French and then also linguistics. Yeah. So people hear linguistics and they just kind of freeze. Mm. They're like, oh, no. Ah. So what is linguistics actually? What does that mean? It's the study of everything that makes up a language. So it's actually a very broad subject that covers grammar, that covers words, word origins, how words are made, how you pronounce words, how you learn languages as a baby, how you store language in your mind. So there are a lot of different directions that you can take a degree in linguistics, but linguistics doesn't teach you languages. It kind of teaches you the art and science around languages. <laughs> For people that don't know, they assume that you're signing up to some kind of crazy intensive program where you're studying 10 different languages in a day, and it's definitely not that. Okay. So then take us through your path of how the study of French and linguistics leads you to be the podcast copywriter that we know now. <laughs> how? That's like, what? <laughs> well, it was quite a long journey. Ten years now? I'm almost embarrassed to say. 
So I, when I left university, I kind of thought, oh, I'll just get a job. And it turns out that it's quite hard to get a job. So I decided that I wanted to have a job where I would be able to use my French language skills. But I found that quite hard to find whilst living in the UK, actually, because people wanted, oh, the jobs are, I was applying to, they wanted somebody who could speak perfect French. And my French is very good and competent, but not perfect. And at the same time, I thought I'm really ready for a life change. I want to do something that's quite different. So I thought, well, I'll just move to France and I'll find a job where they want someone who speaks French and perfect English. I started out first as an au pair with a family just to have time to settle in and adapt and kind of find my bearings in the region because I'd never lived in this region before in the south of France. A little while after that, I moved to doing an internship and then I had a job for five years after my internship where I was writing content and doing some translations. They did a big wave of redundancies in 2021 due to COVID. So I had the experience of going through redundancy in France, which is a whole, a whole level of complicated. But from that, I, uh, I decided that I was going to set up my own business. And that's the business that I do today, where I'm a copywriter and a translator. And through that, I kind of identified some of the specialisms that I have within my skill set. Translating marketing copy where the quality of the translation really matters because they want to speak to the target audience in a relevant way. And because I know British culture and marketing and how it works, I can do a translation that's more culturally appropriate. I really love podcasts and I wanted to have an opportunity to include them in my business in some way. And so I also built a content marketing service for podcasters as well. It's an interesting area of translation and it's one where there's still so much need for human touch. I mean, you know, speaking as many languages as you do, the how people interpret things is very, very different and how you speak to people in different languages is really different. And one small mistake could mean that somebody picks up a completely different meaning or um, association with what you're saying, which wasn't at all intended. It's work that requires a lot of thought and cultural sensitivity. Yeah, there's one notorious example. I can't remember which car maker, but they had a a make that was called Nova in English. And in Spanish, Nova hmm. means that's doesn't go. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the kind of thing where it would really pay to have someone who speaks that language in the boardroom making those kinds of decisions. How do you feel you're adjusting to life as an expat? You've been there since 2016. So mm. what have you seen that has changed? I know as a Brit, the whole Brexit situation must have been like, oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was um, that's definitely been the biggest change for me. And it's a, a change that I feel like I'm still coming to terms with in some ways, because when I arrived in France, all I had to do was show my passport at the border. There was no paperwork. It, it couldn't really have been easier unless I had a taxi from the airport. You know, after the Brexit vote, there was 
a three and a half years of negotiation about what it would mean for British people living within the European Union and people from the EU living in the UK. And eventually it was decided that for British people living in France, that you would have to acquire a visa to be able to carry on living there, which is quite an unusual situation to be in because it's a country where you're already there. I have friends who've lived here for more than 20 years and suddenly you have to go to this department where it's for dealing with foreign people that you've never been to before. And you have to kind of explain your life to them and why you should be able to still carry on living that life. I mean, I don't want to say it's without historical precedent because I'm sure other groups of people have been through this kind of experience before in, in different circumstances. But it is quite hard to get people to comply with laws that they've never had to comply with before, particularly with immigration. Normally, all of your immigration paperwork is front-loaded before you get there or as you arrive, not when you've been there for several years. So for me, it was complicated as well because I lost my job whilst I was applying for a visa and I had no idea what that would mean. Absolutely none. They made it as easy as as it could be, and it was still hard. And so I think, oh my God, people who have to do this when they are, you know, refugees or something, I can't, <laughs> I can't even begin to think how hard it would be. And also, you're dealing with somebody who just doesn't really care about you that much. It means so much to you, but to them, you're you're just a case number. And you think, well, this is my life. This is. This is everything I've been working towards. I really need this to go well because if I don't, if it doesn't, I have no alternative. So it was a lot of pressure. Hours of queuing stood outside, clutching your little paperwork, just thinking, oh, I, I, you know, I really hope this goes well. I really hope this goes well. I actually had multiple appointments because I tried to get a residency card first when I went to pick up my residency card, this was before Brexit, uh, they, they just told me that I didn't exist in the system. And I was thinking, but I do, I, <laughs> I'm here right now. Um, and it turned out that there was just a small glitch in the paperwork. But the lady who I was talking to, she'd already said no to me. She just said, no, not, not my problem, not my issue. And she turned away and I had to really sort of plant my feet in the ground and say, we need to look again because I I can tell you all of this information. I can show you that I exist. So you have to really push and push and push just to get somebody to go a tiny bit beyond what they're expected to do. And then, of course, in the end, you know, my card has sort of fallen down the back of a drawer. They found it and they gave it to me and it was OK. That was the card that I had to trade in to get my post Brexit card. And my post-Brexit card got lost in the post for weeks. <laughs> there was a lot of anxiety around the whole process. And again, I'm thinking, and this is in theory, the easiest version of immigration that I'm dealing with. And I'm coming with privilege of being white in a predominantly white country where I can speak the language, where worst comes to the worst, I could afford a lawyer just in case. And it's still hard. <laughs> Guys, if you're listening to this, this is where it's very important. 
even if you're just a visiting expat to learn the language well enough to advocate for yourself. I know I've had that happen to me twice. One time with my driver's license to get it switched over to the German license, I just had to go pick it up. And the lady said, no, you have to wait in line. I'm like, your colleague told me I just need to come to the door, tell you who I am and pick it up. Two minutes. And it was just like a back and forth with this lady for five minutes. And thankfully someone else heard and they're like, okay, hold on a second. Please come here, sit down. Here's your license. All right. Thank you. Have a nice day. If you're in a situation where you can't have that conversation, if they just say no, and they start walking away and you're like, uh, and you don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, you might have some problems. So if you're not at a level, everybody, where you can defend yourself at an appointment, if you have a friend that is at that level, make sure that you bring someone with you or you find some nonprofit or other service that can bring an interpreter or a translator to go with you because Working with bureaucracy is a pain in the butt, <laughs> especially when it's something you need that they don't really need from you. And it's also important to understand the rules of your new country, whether that be the social rules or what your rights are. I know a good site for that is expatita.com. They have a lot of different cultural nuances and other things that you need to know even about how to get a license or a visa in those countries. That's helped me a lot because if you ask your friends that are from there, they've grown up with that and they don't realize that there's a difference or they don't really know how to explain it. They're like, you just go to this place and do this thing. And I'm like, you need to back up like 10 steps. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> Now, something that has been really big in the news now, Sarah, is this AI. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in our industry or white collar industry in general have been freaking out. They're like, oh my God, my job is going to be taken by ChatGPT. <laughs> what I really like that I heard is AI is going to be an ally, not a replacement. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that again, I'm looking at you guys, don't freak out. AI is an ally, not a replacement. So let's talk about how that is. Sarah, how would this affect podcasting, copywriting, content marketing in general? Where do you see this going? That's a really good question and it's a huge topic. I think that there are a couple of different ways to look at AI and its role in these industries. Viewing AI as a tool that you have access to and can use to make yourself better at your job is probably the best way to look at it. It might take away some jobs at the lower end of the spectrum, but I don't think that it will take all of these jobs. You need to have a think about how AI actually works, particularly ChatGPT. It has access to a lot of things that have been written about a lot of different topics. So you could view it as kind of the median response. It's the most common response. So in that way, it's a great tool for you to think, okay, well, what are other people saying about this topic? Podcasting, for example. And you can ask ChatGPT to tell you that. And then you can look at that and think, oh, great. So this is what most people are saying. So if I want to differentiate myself, I need to steer clear of saying these things. And the AI is never going to give you 
that kind of originality or creativity. It's just regurgitating this information that it has access to. And as a translator, I use translation tools, even for the work that I do with my clients. I'll put certain text through translation tools, but I would never just copy and paste what the translation tool has said and then send it to my client. I, I, that would give me anxiety even thinking about doing it because generally, actually, I find translation tools are really good, particularly with English and French because they're quite common languages, very common languages. But when I read through, I will always change some of the text, at least, let's say, 25 to 30% of it, I will change myself based on what the machine has said, but also based on my knowledge, experience and research. And those changes are the most important changes. So really what I've done is save myself a lot of time because I'm not doing the translation work that's really easy. The machine did that for me, but I'm dedicating some of that time I've saved towards the research element and I'm improving it. And then I'm very happy to send that off to a client because it's the machine's opinion and my opinion together. Yeah, that's a very good practical way of explaining it. And my end, I use it mostly to create a transcript for the videos that I'm making. And that helps me with my editing process and the, the copy that we create with that. But I think this is actually going to be a blessing in disguise for a lot of us creatives because with so much internet in our lives, I think sometimes we get like decision fatigue and then you have to remember how to do something like different processes that you maybe you only use it once every couple months. So this, as you are saying, will free up our brains to refine what pops out of the AI and just reach another level. Yes, exactly. I think refining is a really good way of viewing it. You need to get familiar with using these tools and then build them into your processes bit by bit. And that might look different for different people according to what kind of a creator you are. But it can save you a lot of brain effort. As I said, it can be useful for just that kind of preliminary research where you think, well, what, what's everyone else saying about this? How can I be a little bit different or how can I add a twist to what what the machine is giving me? And I've seen some really good examples of people who compare, for example, marketing slogans of what ChatGPT has said versus the line that the company ended up going with. And you can see that those ones are more creative, more unexpected, more funny. Maybe there's uh, pay off in the in the sentence as you go down because it's a play on a common expression or some kind of pun, whereas the chat GPT might just say, oh, try our fresh new product, but it's not very interesting compared to something that I came up with myself. AI can pretty much get the job done, so to speak, but when you add that human element, that is what resonates. It's kind of like, yeah, you could live on just vitamins. You could. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't you rather cook something that is made just the way you like it mm. and enjoy it and maybe it doesn't have the same nutritional value but it's it's a much more memorable experience so just think about it that way you could live on vitamins 
you could do it, but why would you want to do that to yourself? Exactly. If you're scared of using AI, don't be. You'll you'll be losing out if you don't do it. But also don't rely on it 100% because then you're going to lose your individuality as a creator and everything that makes you unique. ChatGPT couldn't tell you your life story. You could give it the basic facts and it might inject a little bit of emotion like, oh, I felt sad when I moved away from my family, but they're not going to give, it's not going to give you the lived experience that you had that you can express in your unique way to an audience that you know. It's anyone's guess really where it's going to go, except that there's just going to be more and more of it. I think that we'll see the changes accelerate over time as changes build upon changes. It's here. Well, we, we're part of this journey now and we can choose to follow along with it. So it's good to stay nimble. <laughs> you will see people perhaps getting a bit more comfortable with being experts in different things rather than just having kind of general knowledge or general skills. Those ones are the ones that are going to be replaced. But, you know, there's a difference between crunching numbers and then being able to interpret the data and say, okay, so this means that our next step should be. So that's when you get really into that kind of strategy side. So maybe you should think about yourself, not just as a content creator, but also a content strategist who's making informed decisions about what to do next. Very great points. Now, Sarah, if we want to hear more of your insights or to work with you, where can we find you online? Well, I'd love to work with anyone, particularly if you have a podcast and you want to talk about remarketing your podcast content. You can contact me on my website, which is copyhop.co. And I'm also on LinkedIn under my name, Sarah Hopkinson. I work with podcasters who create kind of educational content, particularly people who have a small business and they use their podcast to advertise that business. Anything in those fields, or I also work with copywriters as well. And I help you to look at the podcast content you already have and to remarket it into something new and fresh and different. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this all the way to the end. I hope you're a little bit less afraid of AI now. And hearing Sarah's story, just know that there are different seasons of your life. You're not really sure where something is going. Just ride the wave and see where you end up. This is Gabby B for Clever Hybrid, and we'll see you in the next one.